Breakdancing. Alaska. Welcome to Knickknack News. I'm Alex. And I'm Anthony. And my first story is animal news in space. I originally called it space animal news, but I thought that would be confusing because it's, it's not a space animal because we haven't found any of those yet. But Okay, thanks for the clarification. Yeah, I just wanted to make, make sure that was clear. Uh, this is from Gizmodo. Space station spiders found a hack to build webs without gravity. There's spiders in the space station? I mean, they, they brought them. <laughs> they didn't oh. just like, materialize there, but yeah. <laughs> they brought them for this experiment. <laughs> oh, okay. That makes more sense. I was like, what did they like, just like wow, accidentally... that seems like a huge oversight that they would just have spiders yeah, like, there. <laughs> what would they eat? <laughs> well, I was thinking that they just kind of like... I don't know, somebody went up there and there was one in the ship and then it got it on the station and then it started breeding. I don't know. I don't know. You can just continue your story. But yeah, that's, a, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, so spiders are capable of building typical webs in microgravity so long as they have access to a light source, according to new research published in Science of Nature. Kind of just summed it all up in that first statement, I guess. But like, <laughs> basically they weren't sure if... Spiders could do this because the sense of up and down is very important to their web building and oh. like how they hunt food. Um, so they assumed without gravity they wouldn't be able to to, det- to tell whether they were going up and down. Um, so in the absence of gravity, a light source provides a frame of reference for the spiders. Uh, when it's available, spiders will weave their normal, or this particular breed of spider, will weave their normal asymmetric webs and wait near the top for prey. Without light, however, they will build symmetrical webs which isn't their normal behavior. And also they'll just like not necessarily end up facing down. They'll just, they, cause they can't tell which way is up. Mm-hmm. Um, under normal gravity conditions, this uh, orb web spider tends to build asymmetrical webs with a center or hub positioned towards the upper edge. When resting and waiting for prey, the spiders sit in the hub of the, of the web with their heads facing downward, allowing them to quickly pounce on their prey in the direction of gravity. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, because of this, spy, uh, scientists figured that spiders would be thrown off kilter when exposed to microgravity, um, but that turned out not to be the case as long as they had light. Um, the chosen species for this experiment uh, was the golden silk orb weaver, or Trichonephila clavipes. Um, the researchers designed an experiment in which two spiders would build their webs in separate testing chambers on the ISS while two spiders were kept in identical habitats on the ground to serve as the control group. Um, Interestingly, access to a light source was not actually considered as a factor going into the experiment. This, that wasn't what they were testing. They were just seeing if they could build it in space versus mm-hmm. the spiders on, on Earth. Um, but they found that when the spiders started building while the lights were on, the webs were more similar to the Earth-based spiders, and the light also provided a reference for the spider to place themselves at the top of the web um, because the light was at the top of their enclosure. So they would build it relative to that. But if yeah. the light were, was off, they would build these symmetrical webs, which is apparently not typical behavior for the species. So I thought that was really cool, that they don't actually need gravity. They can just, I mean, <laughs> we know they can yeah. float around on Earth. Now we know they can float around in space. <laughs> I like to remind you of that story every once in a while. Yeah. Where they float around on balloons. It terrifies me. Yeah. It's pretty... I don't know why why you 
You must remind me <laughs> that the spiders are floating around everywhere. I really no. want to see one no, okay. on Earth doing that because I think it would be funny for a second and as long as it wasn't like coming directly at me, like floating around on the balloons. I think it would be kind of funny to see a spider just floating around. Would it be funny or would it just be like a nightmare? <laughs> I, guess, I guess we have different opinions <laughs> of spiders. <laughs> the be, answer is it Would depends. it be funny or would it be a nightmare? <laughs> That's such a good question. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, the the light source thing. I mean, it makes sense that, that you know they're used to yeah, and the it sun suggests and they like, think yeah, it's maybe on Earth they're actually using the sun and not gravity to determine this, or maybe it all it's yeah, a or, it, or of both a combination. But, yeah, it's um, just another thing that is more normal to them. It's like oh, the, that's the sun over there. That must be up. You know, yeah, clearly there's some kind of instinct there too, mm-hmm. which is cool. Yeah, it's cool. Okay, my first story is sports news. That's the, like the third time yeah, we've ever done it. <laughs> we very rarely have sports news, but I have some today. This is from ESPN.com. The headline is, Breakdancing gets Olympic status to debut at Paris Games in 2024. I heard about this. I feel like this is something I would act... I don't usually watch the Olympics. I would, I would, oh, maybe, you I would consider watching this. Because I just feel I like would consider watching this too. I, I, I don't remember. Seems so fun. Where I heard about it on some other podcast, and like they were talking about like regular breakdancing seems pretty cool. Imagine Olympic qualifying breakdancing. <laughs> like it's going to be. What are incredible. they going to do? <laughs> going to do anti gravity breakdancing? Yeah, I I don't know. It'll be the first time it's ever been an Olympic event, so we'll have to we'll have to see. It's not for a few years, unfortunately, but right. but um. Yeah, apparently they've decided to officially call it breaking, like hmm. the event breaking, because that is what um, this what breakdancing was called that in the nineteen seventy in the nineteen seventies um, by hip hop pioneers in the United States, according to this article. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. So that was like a fun fact. So they're going to call it that officially. And then uh, this article also talked about that um, skateboarding, sport climbing, and surfing will also be at the Paris Olympics, but those are three new sports added to the Olympics that are happening this year. Oh, okay. So um, those are also relatively new. Um, And yeah, and then they also mentioned in here that part of, they're trying to get younger people to watch the Olympics, I guess. Oh, And that's that's part of the reason that they're adding, like, You know what the kids love is that break dance. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. They they said, it just mentioned that they're trying to appeal to, like, younger audiences, too, and some of the stuff, the new sports they're adding... They're hoping that a younger audience will watch the Olympics. I guess what's, I don't know. What's, I mean, I've what's next? Tick, part of TikTok it. at the at the Olympics? Huh? They're gonna they're gonna do TikToks TikTok dances at the Olympics? Who knows? I don't know. I, I always know. I thought some of those dances are pretty impressive. So I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Another just random funny fact though about the surfing mm. is that like you can't just do that anywhere. So they they have to host it like in a different place than when where the Olympics are happening, which I just thought was really funny. (laughs) Like they're like, oh, yeah, you can't just like surf on the Seine (laughs) in like yeah, like they're like okay, the Olympics are in Paris, but they're planning for the surfing event to be like in this random beach. It's just like okay, like (laughs) they just have to have it in a different place every time. That's just kind of funny to me. Like I think that's probably the only sport. I was trying to think like like, could they make some kind of like 
indoor surfing arena. Pool, but that would probably be so prohibitively expensive. <laughs> that would be amazing. Because I know there's, how there would are that even wave work? pools, but I don't think there are ones that can make like surfing. Yeah, they're waves. not. They're not like like world champion surfer level waves. They're right. like the kind when you've never surfed before and you're like trying to like. We're just, sitting in, we're just sitting in an inner tube and just yeah, kind of bobbing yeah, up and down the water. It. It's I, those wave pools. I could do that Olympic sport. I could probably do that too. Yeah, just sitting there. <laughs> My next story is science news. This is from Gizmodo. Alaska may be hiding a huge volcanic system. Whoa. What? <laughs> wow. So I, I feel like the, the headline might be a little bit misleading, and I'll get to, to why in a second. But um, uh, So geologists have reason to suspect that a cluster of Alaskan islands is actually part of an interconnected volcanic system of the same kind seen at Yellowstone National Park. Um, which, if you don't know, Yellowstone National Park is uh, has like what's known as a caldera, which is, I have it written down here, is a gigantic subterranean chamber filled with magma, which are known to produce some of the most catastrophic eruptions in our planet's, hist- in our planet's history. Um, hmm. So the, it's, it's basically just like a particular type of volcano or like a volcanic system that are all fed by this giant pool of magma. Wow. Um, as opposed to a more typical volcano, which just has like its own individual like tiny pool. Okay. Which is like still can be destructive, but not over a wide range. Um, so these, the islands that they're, uh, talking about are called the islands of the four mountains, even though it sounds like there's six of them. Um, also, which is abbreviated IFM. Uh, it's an, a volcanic archipelago located in the Aleutian Island chain, which is that chain of islands off like the Southwest coast of Alaska. If you kind of look at if you picture of Alaska, there's like that little swoopy bit, that goes like off yeah. the edge of it. That's the Aleutian um, Island chain. Okay, and this is cool part of that. Um, new research led by John Power from the U.S. Geological Survey at the Alaska Volcano Observatory presents evidence for a large, previously unrecognized caldera. C a l d e r a caldera. I think is how you pronounce that. Um, hmm. In these islands. The cluster consists of six closely spaced volcanoes named Cleveland, Carlisle, <laughs> Herbert, <laughs> Kagamil, Tana, and Uliaga. I don't know what the, what? the theme they were going for <laughs> there was. There is no theme. You have like Uliaga, but then you also have Herbert, <laughs> which is just funny to me. Cleveland, wow. has, Cleveland has been the most active during the past two decades, creating ash clouds that reach 15,000 to 30,000 feet. So it's seems quite active. Uh, Luckily, this is not a populated area. The alleged caldera has eluded detection for so long because it's hidden by recent deposits in the ocean. Um, The evidence was scraped together by analyzing geological deposits, changes to the region over time, gas emissions, and gravity measurements, which indicate the density of buried rocks. Uh, The IFM seems to be influenced by this previously undetected caldera. So they don't actually know for sure that it's there, but they're pretty sure based on all of this evidence, and they're going to be doing more studies. Um, Like I said, Yellowstone is probably the most recognizable caldera caldera on Earth. 
uh, owing to its size and potential threat. It's not expected to erupt anytime soon, but should it happen, the caldera would pour lava over a region extending for 30 to 40 miles. And that's just the lava that would, like, cover that. That's not counting, like, the ash and all the other emissions that would probably blanket the country, if not, like, the hemisphere. Like, this would be... Oh, my goodness. That's huge. This is like that super volcano that every once in a while comes up is like, if this explodes, it's the end, that kind of thing. I mean, it won't be the end, but it it would... um, it would be a massive impact. It would produce so much ash that it could alter climates around the globe. Oh, wow. Um, they say that this newly discovered caldera isn't likely to match Yellowstone in terms of size or threat, mostly because of its location, but also it's smaller, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to altering, this is just a fun fact, in addition to altering the climate, big eruptions can also result in social unrest and upheaval, as was the case in 43 B.C., when the Alaskan Okmok volcano, which is fueled by a caldera, erupted. Recent research suggests that this eruption indirectly led to the fall of the Roman Republic and the Ptolemaic (laughs) kingdom in what is now Egypt. So the, like the ash erupting from this volcano, this eruption, like altered the climate so that there was like famine over on that side of the planet. Like, it was affected all of their oh. crops, so it caused, like, all this unrest, and they think it's ultimately what, like, re- led to the assassination of Julius Caesar. That's like, crazy. Like, they think this, this volcano on the other side of the planet had, like, a pretty significant impact on Roman politics, which is so wow. cool. <laughs> and terrifying, but also, like... Everything's so just, connected. Everything's connected. <laughs> big red Wait, so yarn. So how did they, they just figured out like, okay, they know that when the volcano erupted and they know that there was crops issues mm-hmm. at that same time. Due basically. to cha- like basically falling temperatures around the globe seemed to be affecting things like crops. Wow. And people at that time obviously didn't, they didn't know. Lie. And they didn't have a good understanding of like the science behind that kind of thing. But this is, this research about this was just from like June. Um, the, uh, the social unrest thing, like they just now made this connection. That's so cool. But yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. So, (laughs) yeah, if Yellowstone erupts, then oof, that's that's not good. (laughs) If Yellowstone erupts, is it just going to be so big that it just covers the whole planet in ash? Like, I don't know, but it's going to significantly alter, alter the climate, like probably around the world. They said like some of the gases that it would emit into the atmosphere would like alter the climate everywhere. Like permanently or? I don't know if it would be permanent. It would make it lower, which might be, <laughs> you, might be okay. Minute, every, that part might be everywhere's okay. Everywhere's warming. Not like Maybe the, we're uh, going to cool off a little bit. Not like the mass amounts of death and destruction that it would cause, but like the planet might get a little cooler. So. <laughs> okay. My next story is technology news. This is from ucsdnews.ucsd.edu. <laughs> oh. The, the headline is, a new flexible screen-printed rechargeable battery has up to 10 times more power than state-of-the-art. So Wait, somebody what? came up with a new battery design that's, like, really awesome. This sounds cool. It is cool. I am interested. A team of researchers has developed a flexible and rechargeable battery with a 5 to 10 times greater aerial energy density than state-of-the-art tech. This device could be used in flexible, stretchable electronics for wearables as well as soft robotics. Now, 
they keep using this term aerial capacity, so I don't know if you Is have heard like of that. But capac- I, battery capacity, like per mm-hmm. area, yes, essentially, <laughs> yes, like the capacity per the size, right? In terms of the area, yeah. Exactly. And this is th- things like lithium batteries, I'm guessing is what they're referring to, like state-of-the-art or whatever. Yeah, lithium and also, okay, there exists flexible battery technology already, but gotcha. like, okay. also the existing of that is just not as good as what they came up with. Makes sense, makes sense. Yeah. So the aerial capacity for this battery is 50 milliamps per square centimeter at room temperature, which is 20, 10 to 20, which I, yeah, I'm like, I don't know what that means. 10 to 20 times greater than the aerial capacity of a typical lithium ion battery. And then they wow. translated that to for the same surface area, the battery described by this research can provide five to 10 times more power for the same surface area. Huh. So that seems like it would lend itself to something like a phone really well. Yeah. It can be like anything really that's flat like a small, and, that's actually a good point. Yeah. Cause it's like flat. Uh huh. Um, this new battery also has higher capacity than any of the flexible batteries currently available on the market. Mm. Uh, the energy density is due to its silver oxide zinc chemistry. Silver oxide is a traditionally is traditionally considered unstable, but this battery's silver oxide cathode material relies on a proprietary coating to improve electrochemical stability and conductivity. So they came up with a special coating that like made this chemistry compound stable enough to be used, and now the battery's better. Huh. In simple terms. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, Do I understand, understand all the some no. of those words. By the way, that was already way more simplified than what the article <laughs> said. I, like, cut down, like, three paragraphs of, like, chemistry stuff to, like, two sentences. <laughs> just really, I was just laughing. I'm just like, I don't know what any of this means. That's good. If, you, if you're interested <laughs> in the technical, technical details of this, it yeah. sounds like the article does provide those. It too. does. It does, actually. I, I was impressed by how much detail it went into, actually. Um so in addition to all of that, this battery is also easier to manufacture. Oh. Uh, while most flexible batteries have to be manufactured in sterile conditions under a vacuum, I have no idea why, but that's what it, this says. Okay. Um, <laughs> this one can be screen printed in like a normal lab. The batteries are printed onto a polymer film. And like that works somehow. Just print it <laughs> so out? They just, yeah. Wow. Like the, I guess the chemical materials are just, I'm assuming just, it's like kind of like how a 3D printer works or something, where it's just right. some type of, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. I, <laughs> like, that sounds just really interesting. Got smarter people than me working on this. <laughs> like, like, how did you I, figure this out? <laughs> uh, and during testing, the printed battery cells were recharged uh, more than 80 times without showing any major signs of capacity loss. Uh, the cells also remained functional in spite of repeated bending and twisting. Wow. This sounds Isn't this cool? like almost too good to be true, sort of. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, yeah kind of does. Actually, hey, but... every property you ever wanted in a battery, it's in this one. <laughs> it's cheap to manufacture. It can bend and twist, and it has more power than current batteries. Yeah, it almost. Yeah, I don't like, know how they did it. I know, like, one of the major hurdles of something like solar power is that you need to store that power for the time when. Like for night and other times when there's like cloud cover and stuff. So, like any kind of like significant battery solution is going to be a big deal for that. And I'm wondering if this is something where they could like make big ones of these and just like put them inside walls and like your house is a battery now. Maybe I'm. That's a really good idea. I don't know if like. 
if it scales that way or not, like if it could oh, store that I, kind of I mean, power. I don't but see like, why not? I mean, I guess because like, I don't understand the material science right, and chemistry. I, I don't know. Or if I would it would be like prohibitively expensive too. I don't know, but just it seems like it would be a really. It's really cool. Anytime there's a new battery technology, I just like start, there's, yeah, so there's so many, many cool applications. Possibilities. Yeah, you don't know. You're totally right. Or it, even just as simple as the idea of my phone lasting longer than it. Does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah, I probably their initial thing was that was for this to be used in like small devices mm-hmm. or anything that might have a you might have to fit it into a weird kind of sh- design shape that you could do that with this. Right. But I mean, I'm sure there's other applications too that don't necessarily need it to the flexible part. Right, 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 right. Just the fact that it has more capacity is good. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that they have more capacity than lithium-ion batteries is, like, that's big. <laughs> yeah. Like, beyond the, the flexible thing is cool, I guess, but I can think of fewer applications of that. But anyway. So um, they just noted at the end that the team was made up of researchers from the University of California, San Diego, and California-based company Z-Power. And they published their findings in a December issue of the journal Jewel, like the physics unit term. Not Jewel. The, not, not the, the gemstone. Not, the, not a gemstone. Or the singer. Or the singer. My next story is travel news. This is from CNN. Hawaii is offering free round trips to remote workers who want to live there temporarily. What? (laughs) Sign me up. Tell me all the details of this. I am about to. Uh, So Hawaii is offering free tickets to Oahu to out-of-state remote workers who want to live and work there. The state launched the temporary residency program in collaboration with schools and businesses. It's accepting its first group of applicants until December 15th. So... Um, I think when this comes out, it will, you'll still have a couple days. So, yes, uh, if you want to do that. I, um, okay. So they said 50 people will be chosen for the first cohort. Uh, later applicants will be accepted on a rolling basis. And to apply, you must be a remote worker and at least 18 years old. So not, not too stringent on the requirements yeah. there. Um, Participants must move within one month of being selected and are required to spend at least 30 consecutive days in Hawaii. Uh, those accepted into the program are also required to commit a few hours every week to a nonprofit where they can use their knowledge and skills. Um, so, yeah, it well, seems pretty nice. reasonable. Like, 30 days? Like, okay. <laughs> you're yeah. going to force me to stay in Hawaii for 30 days? Oh, no. <laughs> Whatever will I do? Um <laughs> Though the program will accept remote workers from across the United States, it's also geared towards former Hawaii residents who want to return. They're kind of like, come back and like just do your oh. job remotely, but like come back to Hawaii and um, or That's nice. come there for the first time. And yeah, they're they're also I think if one of if not the like lowest COVID rate states in the country. I mean, in the country used loosely since they're non-contiguous, but like I mean. So they're, it's they're probably easier, a lower risk state. Yeah. It's easier to control, control travel and out. Yeah. And, right. But so they just are trying to use this uh this hard time as a way to to boost their their productivity and stuff and bring people in. Yeah, I mean I I think I'm assuming they you know, tourism is a big industry there and oh, I'm sure yeah. that that's that's definitely suffering right suffering now. and stuff. And they want people to go there still and they're providing an incentive and it's kind of like a win-win situation for those people then. Exactly. 
Yeah. Wow. Okay, I want to apply. <laughs> I should probably talk to my husband first. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, we have to figure out how to re- record the podcast from when you're in Hawaii on like a what? How many hours difference is that? <laughs> oh yeah. Wait. How many hours? Would that be difficult? <laughs> Uh, okay, so there's some things to think about. Yeah. Okay. My next story is animal news. <laughs> this is from thevast.net. Oh. A new source. A new okay. source, yeah. <laughs> Bring out a couple of those today. The headline is, New Species of Whale Discovered. Oh. Thought we found them all. We have not, or we... Now maybe we have. Who, I don't know. Actually, I'm not surprised. A new one it's the ocean. was found. Yeah, it's the ocean. <laughs> this is it. This is the last one. This was the, la- the last unknown species of whale has been discovered. No, we don't know. But yeah, I know. That's super rare, right? That there's a whole species of whale that we didn't know about. An entire yep. one. Yep. So according to a press release uh, by Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, a new species of whale has been discovered off the western coast of Mexico near the San Benito Islands. The discovery happened after Sea Shepherd received some interesting underwater acoustic signals from that area. All species of whale have their own distinct set of sounds, and acoustic matching is frequently used to identify whale species. But in this case, the recorded sound hadn't been heard before, Hmm. so they decided to send a crew to check it out and find out the source of the sound. And they went into a little detail on this, too, in the article about how, like, that in itself wasn't super unusual because there's some species of whales that are just kind of just rare and they don't only show up. Only so often and like... Right, so they thought it might be one of those. Maybe. Yeah, they thought it like, oh, it might be just a rare, a rare species. Like, let's go out and check. Mm. So when the team ar- arrived on site, though, they found three friendly, unidentified beaked whales. So I guess they knew it was a type of beaked whale. Okay. But um, they, it, it's a, it was a new species, and they found that out because the whales were, like, approaching their ship. So they were able to record all this data. Um, including acoustic data, uh, photographs and videos, and genetic samples. And then I was like, how do they get genetic samples of yeah. these whales? Like how? But luckily, this went right into that after that paragraph. So I was like, okay. So apparently they, they used this new technique. They call it eDNA, but I don't know. That doesn't tell you what the technique is, really. It's just DNA take, sent over email. Yeah, right. That's all it is. They take somehow like the gallons of water surrounding the specimen like, out of the ocean, like, out of the water. Okay. And then filter it for bits of DNA and then cross-check everything they find with, like, the DNA of known things until they find the DNA that's, like, the unknown one. Huh. So that's so what like they did. whale spit that was just around them, maybe. I yeah, or, like, bits of That seems pretty skin. useless for... Do they have skin? Was it skin? Do or they is have it, skin? Or is it... Is it... It's not scales. It's not like a fish, right? What would you call that? No, I think whales have skin. You would call it skin? I think so. (laughs) I don't know why I'm like rubbing my arms while I'm talking (laughs) about this. Maybe this will tell me the secret. (laughs) So, yeah. So, anyway, that's the technique that they use. So, they got the DNA of it and confirmed it was an unknown brand new species of whale, Hmm. which is amazing. So, this is a quote from one of the scientists. It just sends chills up and down my spine when I think that we might have accomplished what most people would say was truly impossible, finding a large mammal that exists on this earth that is totally unknown to science. It's a good point. It is a good, yeah, it's a good point. a great impression of that scientist. (laughs) (laughs) Did I do them justice? I I don't know. (laughs) Okay. 
Yeah, it's like we don't know them. We have so no idea what they sound like. Uh, and then the final thing is just that the new species has not been officially named yet. Mm-hmm. So we're still waiting on that. But yeah. They should name it Beth. Beth? <laughs> I was thinking like something like inspirational because it's 2020. Mm. But I can't think of anything right now off the top of my head. What about Whaley McWhaleface? Probably not. Beth. No? No. <laughs> Especially if you're going for inspirational. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sorry to shoot it down. I couldn't think of anything funny. So I guess that's done. (laughs) All right. All right. It's time for breaking news. The part of the show where Anthony and I look up stories that just happened today or were just posted today and we read them to you on the fly. Break dancing. Ready, set, go! Go! Recording. 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 Anyway. Glad we have that uh, recorded. (laughs) Excellent. We'll use that later. Uh, All right. I found this on UPI. Man breaks Guinness record with 32.1 inch tower of tortillas. I, that's, I mean, pretty much any Guinness World Record can be followed by the question, why? I know, <laughs> I, feel like. I know. Um, so Angel Zayas, 24, who is a drag queen and content creator for BuzzFeed, uh, hmm. said it took him about, he's not a drag queen for BuzzFeed, he's just also a drag queen, uh, said it took him about <laughs> three hours to stack the tortillas into a 32.1 inch pile that wouldn't topple over without extra support. Um, he says he practiced for the re- or prepared for the record by practicing with different kinds of tortillas until he found the variety that stacked the most easily. Uh, he didn't give wow. away his secret though. It looks like some kind, from the picture. It looks like a flour tortilla of some sort. Okay. Um, uh, Guinness educator Brittany Dunn witnessed the try virtually and certified the Zayas had created the world's tallest stack of tortillas. I just really love this quote from him. It feels so amazing, and like I accomplished a childhood dream of mine. <laughs> I am over the moon thinking about it. I guess that's, that's cute. If that's your childhood dream, go for it. That's awesome. Was the childhood dream though just like making a rec- like having a record? That was unclear. If it was <laughs> okay. making a record or specifically making a really tall stack of tortillas. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I think that's amazing, and also I really like tortillas, so this made me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I like tortillas too, but I'm now thinking of other foods I could stack. Yeah, what else is what else is easily stackable? Ice cream sandwiches. Oh, ice cream sandwich Jenga tower. That would be an interesting. Oh, like this. You're, so you're thinking like the the rectangular ones? Yes, okay, yes. Yeah, that the, makes sense. The, for like, some reason, I was thinking of the circular ones. Oh, but okay. Both, both would work, but for Jenga, you would need the rectangle ones for sure. Like first, I was just thinking just a stack of them, and then I was like, "Wait, I could make it into a Jenga yeah. tower." And that would have much more structural support, right? Too, so, right. I feel like you could get higher. Sounds like you have a record to break. Maybe I'll do that later. And, and some ice cream sandwiches to buy. Okay, I found this on BBC.com, and the headline is: "More than nine hundred cars pay it forward in random act of drive-through kindness." Oh my gosh! <laughs> so it's just a string of nine hundred people just going, "I'll pay for theirs." I'll yes, pay for theirs. it lasted for more than two days. 
Wait. It was, it lasted. So the last person of the first day so, was just like, the next day, I got the next person. Yes. So this happened in Minnesota, at a town in Minnesota, <laughs> at a Dairy Queen. And they got to over 900 cars, and it lasted for two and a half days consecutively. And like, yeah, at the end of the first day, the last person was like, here's money for the next person's thing. And it happened again the following night. How did they know what the person behind them was going to get? They probably didn't. I think they just gave them some money and they counted it. Okay, so like this person is going to get this, essentially. Like I think they probably were just like, here's $10. Yeah. Put it towards the next person's thing. Huh. But, yeah. That's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's just like, wow. It's just a nice, heartfelt story. And then, and then I'm also like, who's who that stopped last it? person? Yeah. <laughs> Wait <laughs> a second. Who's that last person? <laughs> Somebody didn't pay him. <laughs> they just took advantage of them. <laughs> they probably heard that it was going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that's part of how they got it to last so long is they were like, the Dairy Queen was like telling people like, we're at this many cars. And they were like posting yeah. on Facebook and stuff. And it was like this whole like community wonder, thing. Like for two days. What if people went through the line twice? Just knowing. Not... I'm not going to lie. I probably would have done that. If that were me, if I was in that line, I didn't know what was happening. And then I got there and they were like, we're at 200 cars yeah. of this. I'd be like, yeah, I'll do that. And then like, yeah, I might go back again, like later or something. Yeah. That's funny. Anyway, I thought that was, that was fun. I wonder if that's a Guinness record. Probably. That probably is. We should contact Guinness. <laughs> they should contact Guinness. I don't see why we have to do the work for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was just asking. Well, we made the connection. Yeah, that's true. We could help them out. Wait. Pay it forward. We could pay it forward. (laughs) All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We post episodes every Friday, and as always, the links to this week's stories will be in the episode description. You can subscribe to Knickknack News on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash knickknacknews, on Twitter at at knickknacknews, and on Instagram at knickknacknews. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.